You are listening to audio from Creekside Community Church. If you'd like to learn more about Creekside, find out about our services and upcoming events, or listen to other sermons, please visit creeksidecommunity.org. Good morning. Do you have a, you have a great Thanksgiving? None of you look a pound heavier. I don't know how you do it. It's, it's great. I'm John Bruce, one of the pastors here, and if this is your first time with us, uh, we're glad you're here. We'd like to give you a, a free gift if you'd like one. We have uh, a sippy cup, a water bottle, or a, uh, uh, a coffee uh, tumbler there. You can get that from our uh, information desk out here. Uh, if you have prayer requests or would like more information about our church, there's a card that you can uh, fill out and drop over in the offering slot right there. Uh, you know, when we started Creekside 30 years ago, we were convinced that church is not just an event to attend, but it's a family to belong to, and that Christians by themselves don't do well. And so we've always made a big deal out of community groups and, and having small groups meeting throughout the week where you can uh, have friends and, and pray for each other, encourage each other, read the Bible together and uh, just bear one another's burdens. And so if you're not in a community group, there's information in the bulletin on the website, and uh, I would uh, encourage you to try one out. And if that one was just a horrible experience, then try another one, because there is, there is one that will be right for you, I, I guarantee you. So I just really encourage you to do that. I never planned to become a pastor. Um, I was going to be a high school music teacher. But halfway through college, I asked Christ to come into my life, and I found over time that I enjoyed talking to people more about Jesus and the scriptures than I did teaching music. And so when I graduated, I, I uh, joined uh, the staff of Campus Crusade for Christ, which is a student ministry, and they, they sent me to Cal for 12 years, and it was 12 great years, but I never was going to be a pastor. It wasn't even on my radar. In fact, I just thought that local church was where you went to die. And uh, compared to the the freedom of, of working on campus. After Lori and I, though, had Jenny, we found our hearts being pulled more and more uh, to families and working with adults, and I had no idea how that might take place because I hadn't been to seminary, uh, had no background in that. But one day, my pastor, John Nodelfer, over at First Covenant Church where I was attending, asked me out for lunch. And, and during that lunch appointment, I, I'll always get free lunch from anybody, but he he offered me a job at the church as, as their director of evangelism and discipleship. Tough decision because we didn't want to leave Cal, but we felt like this is what God wanted us to do. But, but that led ultimately to Creekside being planted and where we are today. I found out there was more to the story, though. Anytime a church wants to create a new position that didn't exist before, it's a challenge because... Typically, every church has got their budget already spent the year before, right? And I found out that there was a wealthy couple at First Covenant that I didn't know who had gone to John and said if they would hire, the church would hire me, they would pay my first year of salary. And, and I didn't know that till oh, a decade after that, but uh, got to know this couple, even though they were quite wealthy, very humble, unassuming people who really believed that God had blessed them to be a blessing to other people. And, I, and they were such a blessing to so many people. Every Christmas and Easter, we'd find a big box on our front 
uh, porch full of presents for all of us. And they didn't do that just for us. They did that for all kinds of people. They supported um, many ministries all over the world. And, and the reason Creekside exists today is, is partially due to their generosity. The Bible doesn't teach that wealth is a blessing or a curse. The Bible just teaches that wealth is a tool. And how we use it will either bless our lives or curse our lives. And the passage we're going to look at this morning from James, James 5, 1 through 6, is how blessing, how, how wealth can become a curse to those who use it poorly. And, and the James lists the ways that God is going to judge the wicked wealthy. Now, it's kind of a strange passage because you wonder, why does James write to people who will probably never read these words? And, and yet, you see this happen often in the scriptures and in the prophets. You see God speak to Egypt and Assyria and Babylon and Edom and, 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 and the judgment that's coming upon these nations because of the way they have treated his people. In, in the book of Revelation, you have, woe to Babylon the great, woe to the kings of the earth, woe to the, those who do not repent because of the judgment that's coming upon them. So, it's fairly common in the Bible for people to be addressed who will probably never read these words. But why does the Bible do that? Well, in James, look, I want you to look at James 5, 7, the verse right after the verses we're going to look on. James writes, Therefore, be patient, brethren, until the coming of the Lord. The farmer waits for the precious produce of the soil, being patient about it until it gets the early and late rains. You too be patient, strengthen your hearts, for the coming of the Lord is near. James is writing to people who are suffering from the oppression of the rich. And he says, here is the way the story ends. God is not mocked. God sees everything and he will make every wrong right. He will repay every person for the good they've done and for the evil they've done the rich are not going to get away with it. So be patient. Be patient, brethren, because you know how the story ends. That's the idea. So that's why I've called this passage the comfort and the discomfort of God's judgment. The fact that God will judge the wicked should be a comfort to those who are suffering from the wicked because we know this is just a temporary situation that God is going to make all that is wrong right one day. It also should be a discomfort to the wicked to reassess their ways and repent so they can escape this judgment. Now, it's important to see that the Bible never condemns the rich for being rich. In fact, the Bible teaches that we're never to see people as members of a class, but we're to see each person individually. There are good rich people, there are evil rich people. There are good poor people. There are evil poor people. And that's why Leviticus says, you shall not do injustice in judgment. You shall not show partiality to the poor or give preference to the great, but you are to judge your neighbor fairly. Now, this is talking about courtroom situations, and essentially it is instruction for the judges of Israel to not give preference to a person because he's poor 
or because he's rich, but to deal each person as an individual. So James is not judging the rich because they're rich. He's judging them because of how they've used their riches and three specific reasons that we're going to look at this morning. First, the wicked, wicked rich waste their wealth. That's verses 1 through 3. Second, the wicked rich cheat others to become rich. Verse 4. And finally, the wicked rich are blinded by their wealth. So, if you're tempted to envy the rich or resent the rich, it's a good passage for you because it's going to show you the rest of the story. If you're rich, and, and by the standard of the world, we are all pretty rich, uh, this should be sobering to us to see that God holds us responsible for what he entrusts to us. If you're a Christian, this should be a great source of comfort knowing that we will never stand in judgment before God because Christ has already taken that judgment for us on the cross and that we've been forgiven and passed from judgment into life. But we're still God's children, and while we will never be judged in eternity, in this life, God does discipline his children, and so these are some practices we need to be careful of as rich people even though we will never be caught, fall into judgment for them because in this life, God will dis discipline us. And finally, if you're not a Christian, hopefully this will wake you up to the terror of standing before God's judgment by yourself without an advocate and a Savior beside you. So that's where we're going. Let's, let's pray silently and ask God to teach us. We need to, His Spirit to be our instructor this morning. Thank you for your word, Father, through which you perform your work in us who believe. Thank you for your spirit. You promise to lead us into all truth. We pray you'll be our teacher and make us able students. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. The first reason that James says the wicked should fear the coming judgment of God is because they've wasted their wealth. Rather than using it for other people's benefit, they've hoarded it to their own destruction. I've noticed in my neighborhood that very few of my neighbors park in their garage. Most people park on the street or in their driveway. Why is that? Why is that? Because their car won't fit right? Their garage is full of stuff. We don't have a garage. We have a shed in back of our house, which is full of stuff too. And I often think, would I rather have the stuff that's stored in that shed, or would I rather have the money that paid for that stuff? And I think I'd rather have the money. And I, th I think of those, those things when I read these verses. Let's read James 1, 1 through 3. Come now, you rich, weep and howl, for your miseries which are coming upon you. Your riches have rotted, and your garments have become moth-eaten. Your gold and your silver have rusted, and their rust will be a witness against you and will consume your flesh like fire. It is in the last days that you stored up your treasure. 
instead of using what God gave them as a tool to do good, the rich, is, the rich hoarded what they have, and now the stuff they've hoarded has become junk. Does that sound familiar to anybody? And so James is warning us of, uh, of wasting our wealth is an investment in our future misery. Jesus told a story about a wealthy businessman who went on a, on a journey. And, and while he's away, he, he entrusted his business to three servants. And to one servant, he entrusted five talents, and to another, he trusted two, and the third, he trusted one. Now, Jesus is exaggerating here because a talent was uh, 75 pounds of gold, and so the five-talent guy would have gotten 375 pounds of gold entrusted, which make him a multimillionaire today. So Jesus is exaggerating in the story to make the point that what God entrusts to us is very valuable. Well, the first two servants, the five-talent guy and the two-talent guy, immediately go out and go into business and, and double their master's money. So the master comes back and he said, see, your five talents made five more talents. And, and see, your two talents made two more talents. And the master says, well done, good and faithful servants. You were faithful with little. Now be part, in charge of much. Entered the joy of your master. The one-talent guy was afraid, though. So he goes and buries his talent so he won't lose it. And when the master comes back, he digs up the talent. He says, see, I didn't lose it. You have what you, what, what you gave me. And the master says, you wicked, lazy slave. You could have at least put it in the bank, and I would have gotten interest on it. Take the one talent from him and give it to the ten-talent guy and cast this worthless servant into the outer darkness with the hypocrites where there's weeping and gnashing of teeth. Now, here's what I want you to see. The third servant didn't lose his talent. He didn't abuse his talent. He just didn't use his talent. And that's the point, that, that God gives us wealth not to hoard but to use for his objectives in the world and for our fellow men. Jesus said that God's greatest rival for our hearts is wealth. No man can serve two masters, for either he'll hate the one and love the other, hold the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and wealth. And therefore, how I deal with wealth is a reflection of what I really value, what I really believe about God. That's why when John the Baptist came preaching, he said, repent, the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And all these people from all over Israel went to the Jordan River to get baptized as a symbol of their repentance and that they wanted to be part of the kingdom. But John said, it's, repentance isn't that easy. Repentance isn't just going through a ritual. Repentance isn't just feeling sorry for your sins. Look at Luke 3. And the crowds were questioning him, saying, Then what shall we do? And he would answer and say to them, The man who has two tunics is to share with him who has none, and he who has food is to do likewise. John says the sign of true repentance, of truly turning to God and making God first in your life, is what you do with your possessions. If you have more than you need, 
You won't hoard it. You'll share it with those who have need. You're not saved because you're generous. You're generous because you're saved. Because Jesus has come to live in your life, and Jesus is the one who, though rich, made himself poor, that we might become rich. And if Christ is in my life, I want to become like Jesus. Does that make sense? Last week, we saw an ambulance and a fire engine across the street in front of my neighbor's house. And I saw him talking to the paramedics. And so, uh, being a nosy neighbor, I walked across the street to find out what had happened. And it turned out the guy that rents from him, whom we've both known for years, had died. Just, uh, in fact, he'd been dead for a couple of weeks and nobody even knew. He died in his sleep. This guy in his early 50s. And, and I had known Brett for years, and, you know, we talked when we passed. He's really into sports cars, so we always talked about sports cars and stuff like that. But I told Mike, my neighbor, I said, I feel so bad that I never talked to him about his spiritual life. And Mike said, yeah, I, I didn't either. Just was a nice guy, and we kind of... And, and it, I have believed for years that I've got years to talk to my neighbors about Christ. You know, they'll be here forever. I'll be here forever. No hurry. I got other things to do today. And it just, it woke me up. And I, and I remembered the verse Jesus says in Luke 16. He says, make friends for yourselves by means of the wealth of unrighteousness so that when it fails, and it always will fail, you can't take it with you. When it fails, those friends may greet you in heaven. Use your money to make friends of lost people so that you can share the gospel with them so that they will greet you when you get to heaven. That's the idea. And I, re, I just recommitted ourselves to using our home, our money, our food, to, to build relationships with our neighbors so that we can talk to them about Christ because that's what matters. That's, that's how I apply verses 1 through 3 to my life. I don't want to waste what God has given me. I want to use it as the tool that God has given it. Now, there's a second reason. James says the judgment of God will fall on the wicked rich. Not only do they waste their wealth, but they cheated others to become wealthy. I'm convinced that God is less concerned about how much we have and more concerned about how we got what we have. Look what, look what verse 4 says. Behold, the pay of the laborers who mowed your fields and which has been withheld by you cries out against you, and the outcry of those who did the harvesting has reached the ears of the Lord of Sabaoth. The, the Lord of hosts or the Lord of the armies. James is addressing the wealthy landowners of Israel who controlled much of the productive land. And they were commanded in the law to pay their workers daily because their workers were totally dependent upon their wages. They had no savings accounts. They had no no backup. They, they were totally dependent. In fact, look what the law says. Leviticus says, you shall not oppress your neighbor nor rob him. The wages of a hired man are not to remain with you all night until morning. The law told the wealthy, 
pay your workers daily. And Proverbs says, do not say to your neighbor, go and come back tomorrow. I'll give it to you when you have it with you. And yet the wealthy have become even wealthier by cheating their workers out of what they owed. And, and the same thing happens today. During the uh, uh, last recession back in 2008, to make ends meet, a, large, a, a number of large, large corporations extended their payment schedules for their suppliers from 30 days to 45 days to 60 days to 90 days just to make ends meet. And the suppliers couldn't do anything about it because they're totally dependent on the corporation for their business. Well, what the corporations found is they had a lot of money as a result of that. And that was money they could use for research and development or for executive salaries or, or whatever and, and simply by delaying their payments. And so it became standard business practice for a lot of corporations in America that they now delay paying their suppliers longer and longer, even though suppliers are totally dependent upon that money. It's just good business. It's just good business. Well, James says it's not good business because there is a God who is not mocked. There is a God for whom the weight, every weight of the bag is his concern, who di uh, disdains dishonesty, and he will bring back what we sow and what we reap. That's, that's the point here. How does this apply to us? Well, we went through a couple of decades of financial struggles, like probably everybody here is, and we, we learned an important lesson God provides. And uh, I, I, Scripture says that uh, it's the blessing of the Lord that makes rich. He has no sorrow to it. We learned that I'd rather have a little bit that's blessed by God than a lot that's not. Have you, have you found that? So we learned how to trust God and depend on him to provide when we didn't have. And we learned two important principles. God provides for those who don't cheat him, who tithe who honor the Lord from all their wealth and from the first fruit of all your produce so your barns will be filled with plenty and your vats will overflow with new wine. And we found that when we paid God first, we always had more money at the end of the month than when we did. Didn't. We also learned to pay our bills on time. That God didn't want us to cheat him and God didn't want us to cheat others. That when we had it with it, we would pay it. And we found that we, as long as we did that, we were blessed. And, and ever since then, when I counsel people who haven't having financial problems, I'll say, are you tithing? Are you paying your bills on time? I can't afford to tithe. You can't afford not to tithe. Are you paying your bills on time? I can't afford to pay my bills. You can't afford not to pay your bills because God exacts high interest. That's the idea here. And so in terms of application for us, even though if you're a Christian, you will not face eternal judgment, it's still you will, you will face God's temporal discipline if we are trying to cheat God or cheat our neighbor. Now, there's a third reason that the, that the wicked wealthy should fear God's coming judgment. Not only have they wasted what God gave them, not only have they cheated others, but their, their wealth has blinded them. It's blinded them. Look what he says, James says, you have lived luxuriously on the earth and led a life of wanton pleasure. You have fattened your hearts in a day of slaughter. I, uh, I saw this cartoon recently. 
if you, if you can't read that, the little fish is saying, there is no justice in the world. The middle-sized fish says, there is some justice in the world. The big fish says, the world is just. The wealthy have a different perspective on life than people who are not wealthy. Have you noticed that? Psychologists call this the empathy gap. That, that people who are wealthy have a difficult time empathizing with people who are not wealthy. Researchers have found that people who drive old cars tend to stop and help people beside the road far more often than people who drive new, expensive cars. That people who live in poor neighborhoods tend to help their neighbors and socialize with their neighbors far more than people who live in affluent neighborhoods who tend to keep to themselves. That poorer people tend to give a larger portion of their income to charity than wealthier people. It's the empathy gap. People, wealthy people, see life through different perspectives. It's, it's harder for them to empathize with people who aren't wealthy. They seem to feel they deserve to be wealthy. Their riches have blinded them to reality. And that's why Jesus says, the eye is the lamp of the body. So then, if your eye is clear, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eye is bad, your whole body will be full of darkness. If then the light that is in you is darkness, how great is the darkness? What does Jesus mean here? It's the context of these verses that give them their meaning. In the verse before this one, Jesus talks about two treasures, a heavenly treasure and an earthly treasure. And where your treasure is, your heart will be also. In the verse after this one, Jesus talks about two masters, God and wealth, and how you cannot serve both. So Jesus is talking about wealth in this context, and he's talking about how wealth blinds us to reality, blinds us to what's true. In fact, the word for greed in the, in the Old Testament was having a bad eye. Greed blinds you. And that's why James compares the wealthy to fat, blind cows fattening themselves up for slaughter. Boy, we've, it's never been so good. We've never, it's like a smorgasbord every day. And they don't realize that this is not going to end well. That wealth blinds you. Does that make sense? And not only does wealth blind us, to our condition, it blinds us to justice. Look at the next verse. You have condemned and put to death the righteous man. He does not resist you. In the first century, as in every century, the wealthy can make the system work for them. They can afford the expensive lawyers. They can afford the legislatures who, will, who pass laws uh, that benefit them. Have, have you ever wondered why no one who is elected to office in Washington, D.C. ever leaves poor? 
Have you ever wondered why most of the legislation that's passed in Congress benefits one group over another? And so the wealthy know how to work the system, and because it's legal, they consider it right. Well, the same thing was happening in the first century. When the Christians were persecuted, when you were arrested for your faith, it was legal for other people to go into your home and take all your possessions away. And because it was legal, it was right. And James says that the righteous don't resist. They turn the other cheek. They're like Jesus, who when he was reviled, did not revile in return. And when cursed, uttered no threats, but instead blessed. So he says the righteous do not resist you, but that doesn't mean that God isn't observing. Hebrews says you, you accepted joyfully the seizure of your property, knowing that you have for yourself a better and abiding possession in heaven. So the Christians aren't really losing anything, but those who persecute them, those who use the law against them, those who, who are doing what's legal and yet what is wrong because they've been blinded by their riches will one day pay the price. That's the idea here. Now let me summarize with this. How do verses 1 through 6 apply to our lives? Let me give you three ways. One, if you're tempted to resent rich people, or worse, if you're tempted to envy rich people, this should wake, be a wake-up call that the rich are not that rich. I want to read you a fairly lengthy section by a Puritan by the name Thomas Brooks, because I think he really captures this. Thomas Brooks lived in the 1600s, and he writes, Ah, and that, that's the way they talked back then. Ah. <laughs> Did men dwell more upon that account, they must before long give for all the mercies that they have enjoyed and for all the favors they have abused and for all the sins they have committed. It would make their hearts to tremble and their lips to quiver and rottenness enter their bones. It would cause their souls to cry out and say, oh, that our mercies had been lesser and fewer, that our account might have been easier and our torment and misery for our abuse of so great a mercy not greater than we were able to bear. Oh, cursed be the day wherein the crown of honor was set on our heads and the treasures of this world were cast into our laps. Oh, cursed be the day when the sun of prosperity shines so strong upon us and this flattering world smiled so much upon us as to occasion us to forget God, to slight Jesus Christ, to neglect our souls, and put far from us the day of our account. It's no wonder that James tells the rich to weep and howl for the miseries that are coming upon them. Don't envy the rich. God is not mocked. And everything God has entrusted to every person, they will give an account for. That's, that's James' point here. Second way these verses should affect us, it should make, if you're a Christian, very grateful for the cross. Because we're all sinners. And if you haven't sinned in these specific ways, I have a whole Bible for you. We've all sinned, haven't we? We all deserve to stand before God's judgment. But the good news of the gospel is that God loves us. 
And in fulfillment of centuries of promises, he sends Jesus to become a human being, to do for us what we could not do for ourselves, to live a life of perfect obedience that we failed to live so that God, as a gift of his grace, can credit us that perfect record of righteousness when we put our faith in Christ. To die the death we deserve to die, to to bear the punishment for our sins on the cross so that we don't have to bear it, to rise from the dead so that we can live forever with him. Jesus says in John 5, 24, he who hears my word and believes in him who sent me has passed from death into life and will never come under judgment. The the good news of the gospel is that Jesus bore our judgment that we deserved so that we don't have to bear it. Third way this passage can influence our lives, if you struggle with the love of money, The love of money is not your problem. Our problem is idolatry. Idolatry is depending on anything other than God to provide what we need. And the reason we love money is because we trust money to do what only God can do for us. Money to make us happy. Money to give us control over our lives. Money to to protect us. And and that's what we need to repent of. To say to God, God, I I repent of my idolatry. I I repent of of depending on on money to make me happy because it can't. Ecclesiastes says, he who loves silver will never be satisfied with silver. And he who loves abundance will never be satisfied with the increase of abundance. Only God can satisfy us. Only God can save us. And so a passage like this, which warns the wicked rich of pinning their hopes on on their wealth, is a reminder to us, don't do it. Put your faith in a God who loves you and will provide for you. Jesus was the happiest man who ever lived. And all Jesus had the day he died was the clothes on his back. Let's pray. Father, thank you for delivering us from judgment. Thank you that whoever calls in the name of Jesus will be saved. And I pray, Lord, that to the way, the way we follow the rich, the way we pin our hopes on our cash and our, our bank accounts, you will reveal that, that you are the only everlasting rock. You are the only true security. Thank you for loving us and your commitment that even when we're faithless, you remain faithful. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.